0: Okay, so this week we are in the last Sunday night of our series on knowledge of the holy, the character and attributes of God. Uh, We're going to spend the spring retreat talking about one more attribute, but as far as Sunday nights go, this is the final Sunday night and it's been a haul. We have uh, looked at some deep things because we've looked into the nature and being of God. And so I just want to commend you guys for sticking through it, for not finding another church because it was just too dry or whatever. So kudos to you guys for sticking in it. And I pray that um, what has happened is as our head knowledge has grown of the Lord, our hearts have grown as well for him. We've talked about God's incommunicable attributes, the things that he does not share with his creatures. And in these last few weeks, we have looked at his communicable ones, the attributes he invites us to share in with him. And the two we've looked at are his holiness and his love. And tonight we're going to look at His justice. And what we mean by justice is this. Heather, could you tap the space bar for me? Great. This is what we mean by justice. God acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So you can see the secular, like, dictionaries definition of justice. And as far as the other attributes have been, they've been pretty spot on. But these, I want to just point out a big, big difference in where a Christian understanding of justice departs widely from a secular understanding. You can see in the, like just take Merriam-Webster, acting on or being in conformity with what is morally upright or good. And that's true for us. For us to be just, it is when we are in conformity with what is upright or good. But look at our doctrine, our definition for God to be just. God acts in accordance with what is right. Okay, so so far that's the same. And he himself is the final standard of what is right. So God's justice or Justice itself really is not a standard outside of God that he subscribes to or meets. There isn't some reality called justice that God is because he's morally perfect. God is the definition of justice. His character, what he is like, is the standard of what justice is. God is just and justice is defined by God's character. And as we encounter it, justice is God's character weighed out against all actions. And so God himself is the definition, is the standard of justice. When we say, oh, that's not just, or that's not justice, what we're saying is that's not in conformity with God. That's not what God is like, because he is the standard of justice. He defines what justice is. And tonight, I want us to focus in on God's justice in dealing with sin in the world. There's a lot of different ways we could look at God's justice, but we just don't have the time. And so tonight, I want us to ask this question. What does God's justice do or look like when it encounters sin and injustice? What is God's justice or just what does God do or look like when he encounters sin and injustice? And by doing so, I think we're going to see deeper into the kind of God God is and in return what kind of people we should be and what kind of actions we should take when we ourselves encounter sin and injustice in the world. And so, let's pray and then we will get going. Well, we just ask for your help tonight again. Um, we know that your word is supernatural and we need your spirit's help to understand it. We need it, your spirit to um, illuminate it for us. And so, we ask that you would just speak to our hearts through your word. Help me not to get in the way of that. Um, accomplish what you want for tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Someone's name in the Old Testament was in many ways the most crucial part of their identity. It's why parents named their children certain things, either as blessings or sometimes as curses. Your name was much deeper than simply a tag you went by. It was viewed as an integral part of your identity. Take as an example, Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers of Isaac. Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. He's covered in red hair, the text says, and he's named Esau because Esau is the word for hairy. So, that's not that special. That's kind of like, ah, eh, he's a hairy baby, name him Harry. But Jacob, who obviously comes out second, comes out holding onto Esau's heel. And so he's named Jacob, which means he takes by the hill. But that phrase is an idiom, which means he cheats. And if you know the story of Jacob, you know that his whole life is one of cheating and deception. It's one of trying to get ahead by less than appropriate means, like grabbing onto a heel or by straight out lying. He cheats and deceives other people, and other people, his own uncle, cheat and deceive him. And so his name is, in a sense, just a name. He's just named Jacob because he was born grabbing onto the of heel of his brother. And yet it's a picture into his very identity. And the same is true for God. God's name is synonymous with his being. It's the outward expression to his creatures of the innermost mystery of his existence. It's the word that he gives us for his godness by which he can be known. And because it is that, it is inextricably tied to his glory. God often declares throughout the Bible that he does this and that or refrains from doing this or that, quote, for my namesake, aka for my glory. In Exodus 3, God tells his name to Moses. Moses is being sent to Pharaoh to free the people of Israel and wants to know what God, what God he should tell the people has sent him. And he says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I say to them? God replied, I am who I am, which we represent as the letters W or Y H W H or Yahweh. But that's not the last time that God's name comes up with Moses. As we've seen in our very first talk in this series, Moses asks to know God again and to know his name again. In Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God responds by saying in verse 19 of Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, because his name and his glory, who he is, are inextricably tied together. And then just down the page, probably in your Bible, in chapter 34, verse 5, God begins to do just that. So turn there. If you've got your Bible, turn to chapter 34 of Exodus, and we're going to start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or those all caps are just Yahweh, 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 a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When God gives his name, he originally gives it as I am who I am, or I be who I be, or just I is, is basically how we would translate it today. He is Yahweh. And when Moses asks to know him further, to see deeper into his glory, God says that he will proclaim before him his name. And this is what he says. Given the chance, again, to reveal further depth and insight into his character and nature, the God of the cosmos lists these things. Number one, he is God of mercy. The first thing out of God's mouth following his name is that he is a God merciful. Now what's mercy? That's a Christian word we say a lot. Mercy is holding back the retribution someone should receive. It's to not give someone what they deserve when what they deserve is punishment. It's to not drop your grade. It's for your teacher to not drop your grade for forgetting an assignment. That would be a merciful action. It's to stay one's Hand. It's to pardon the guilty. To show mercy is to not require of someone what they owe you. It is to not exact from them, exact from them the very thing they should be giving. And Yahweh is full of mercy. He is mercy full. It is the first descriptor he gives of his name, of his glory, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who holds back the punishment his creatures deserve. Second thing he says, is that God is not only merciful, but He is gracious. Graciousness, or grace, is a gift. It is gift-giving. Where mercy is to withhold something negative someone deserves, grace is to give positively what someone does not deserve. It is to give a trophy when someone hasn't earned it. It is to curve the score of a test. It is to let someone turn in their assignment for you when you forgot to do it and for your teacher to allow that to happen. It is to gift the guilty. It's to freely give them the very thing they should not be getting. And this is the second thing that Yahweh says about himself. He is a God merciful and gracious. He does not only hold back the punishment people deserve, he blesses them with the very thing they do not deserve. This is our splendid God. This is why his name is so connected to his glory, because his mercy and his grace set him apart from all other gods. His mercy and grace in the face of sin is not to be found In any conception of God across human history besides here, there is no God who pardons what is owed him while giving the very thing that he requires. There is no other God merciful and gracious. And so this God's glory is unmatched. These realities of God so central to his names that they're the first thing out of his mouth when proclaiming it set him high and above every other false God. Other gods, literal ones we worship or Technology, money, sex, power, other gods are taskmasters. They give to-do lists and exact precise payment when the quotas are not met. They dole out retribution on the creatures gleefully like masochists. And they most certainly never gift, not freely. They may reward according to the syllabus they've given, but they do not give precisely what is not earned. But the true God, Yahweh, is a God merciful and gracious withholding what is deserved, clearing debt, not exacting what is owed him and giving freely what is not earned, gifting what could never be afforded. This is the name of Yahweh and the scriptures that follow are his own way of fleshing out what that means. So look at them, slow to anger. That's mercy to not fly off the handle when that would be the justified thing to do. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, grace, that's grace to give in abounding quantities, over the top, overflowing, that which humans can never reciprocate. Giving steadfast love for thousands, grace to keep on giving what is constantly forfeited by our own sin, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, grace to erase from the record books the wrong that has been done to him. This is our God, merciful and gracious. But, for as incredible as that is, maybe this raises a problem for you. It actually does for me as a millennial with a justice complex. Something does not sound right. Why is God allowed to do this? It sounds nice that he pardons the guilty, but if a human judge pardons someone we all knew and he knew, was guilty we would cry foul and say that's wrong you can't do that if he's guilty he's guilty you cannot declare him innocent that is the exact opposite of justice the guilty are exactly the ones who should not go scot-free they should be the ones punished because they are guilty and God agrees which is why he says immediately after these fluffy things or just nice things they feel good things we just read he says but who will by no means clear the guilty now how does that go together How can God be merciful and gracious and yet by no means clear the guilty? That is precisely what it means to be merciful and gracious. Shouldn't he have to pick one? He can either be merciful and gracious and therefore clear the guilty, or he can be just and not clear them because they are guilty. And so, we have to ask the question. If we're going to be honest readers of the Bible, we have to ask the question that is screaming at us here. Is there an inherent contradiction in the name of God? a god merciful and gracious withholding from the guilty what they deserve and giving them what they don't but a god who is also just and so by no means clears the guilty how can they coincide the answer is they can't god cannot clear the guilty and god can god cannot clear the guilty and not clear the guilty even he must do one or the other god's mercy and grace a justice issue. They bring into question, is God even just? And if he is, how can he then be merciful and gracious? What I want us to see, what I want to show you, I hope, in the Bible, is that God himself is aware of this issue and that that's the entire purpose of God in human history. It's been to solve this issue and to do so perfectly. And what I want to demonstrate is that actually God's mercy and grace, when we think of them as love often and the attribute of love, they're actually sub-attributes under the umbrella of the core attribute of his justice. They're just actions. They do not contradict his justice. They actually are possible because of his justice. But I need to show you that. And so to do so, I want us to go to Romans 3. And I really do want you to turn here because I want you to see it with your own eyes in the text and not just take my word for it. So this is Romans 3. In the argument of Romans thus far, Paul has laid out how there is no person righteous or just, that all humans before God stand condemned in sin. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 3, that humans cannot be justified before God by the law. And then he says this, and just a little disclaimer about the passage I'm about to read. When you read the New Testament, anytime in the New Testament, there's not one instance where this is different. The words for righteousness and justice or righteous and just are the same Greek word. I'm going to try to say it, diakonis. Same Greek word, always. We just translate them righteousness or justice to be helpful in our translations, but they're always the same word. And so I'm going to read, because I think this passage is all about God's justice. I'm going to read all the words that say righteousness as justice, and that's okay to do, because literally the same Greek word, the ESV, which I'm reading, just chose to translate them righteousness. But I think they're wrong, and they should have translated them all justice. And so that's how we're going to read it. So, verse 21 chapter 3. But now the justice of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the justice of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's justice because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God has manifested his righteousness or justice or moral rightness apart from the law, which was what he gave to Moses, all the laws. And he has done so through faith in Jesus Christ, a.k.a., or in other words, God has now made it known that righteousness, or us being justified, comes not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is because there is no distinction. All are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, even your really sweet Grandma Susie. That's the bad news, But the good news is that just as all stand condemned before God, all can be justified or made righteous before God by, quote, his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, which is just a fancy word for the full atoning sacrifice, which just, or sorry, in the quote again, by his blood to be received by faith. And so this is the gospel the good news, the central message of the Christian faith. All have fallen short and are condemned before God. All are unjust, all are unrighteous, all are condemned justly before him. And yet, in Christ's atoning work on the cross, God has extended his grace, his unmerited favor, so that those who receive Christ by faith stand no longer as condemned, but as justified before God. Hopefully you're beginning to see how God's justice is married to his grace, and mercy. But if not, Paul makes it explicitly clear. Look at Romans 3.25b, which is just the second sentence, through 26. This was to show God's justice. So the, this is referring back to what he just said, the gospel, the good news, that in Christ's atoning sacrifice, people have been made right before God. This was to show God's justice Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his justice at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is aware that his mercy and grace raise a justice issue for him. You look over the entire swath of human history. And God has been exhibiting grace and mercy every moment of every day for all of human history since the very first fall with Adam and Eve. We should have been wiped off, the plane, uh, off, wiped off the plane of existence. Humanity should have been no more. We should not be here, and yet God has sustained it by his grace and mercy, giving us life, which we no longer deserve because of Adam and Eve and our own sin, and withholding from us the just annihilation that we also deserve. He has done that with humanity in general and then with his own people, Israel. They've never been faithful. They've always broken covenant with him. He gives Moses the 10 commandments, which was like the covenant. Hey, Moses, go down and tell them these 10 rules to keep. And by the time Moses gets down the mountain, they're already making the golden calf. They're that unfaithful. God has constantly been showing his grace and mercy to his people. When they did not deserve that. When because of their sin, he should have broken covenant back with them and let them go. Yet in his divine forbearance, God has seemingly passed over their sin. Sure, there's the sacrificial system that he instates and that's important. But as the New Testament makes clear in many places, those goats and bulls didn't actually remove the sin of the people. And so they actually don't solve the justice problem. They don't actually remove Israel's guilt. And so God is still doling out mercy and grace to them when they do not deserve it, which is not just of God to do. He's in his divine forbearance passing over their sin. And so what we have is God showing mercy and grace to people, God passing over their sin, and that is not just. You can call it what you want, but it is not just. And so what does God do? He puts forward Jesus as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, which not only covers God's people's sin from that moment forward, but which retroactively covers all of the people who have ever been in covenant with Yahweh, all of their sin, all the way back to Adam and Eve. It works forward for us from that point on, to us, to however long the Lord tarries, and it works backwards. To cover all the sin God's people has ever committed since he created them. Which means God has not been unjust. He has not actually passed over any sin or turned a blind eye towards it. He has always planned. From before the foundation of the world, God did not decide halfway into Israel's history, you know what, I've been passing over sin That's not just of me. I should probably come up with a plan to pay for it and then came up with sending himself as Jesus. No, this has been the plan of God from before humanity began, before creation began in eternity past. This was God's plan to make a people for himself, to covenant himself with them, to show them mercy and grace upon mercy and grace upon mercy and grace, not by excusing their sin, but with the knowledge that one day he will pay for it in full with the blood of God of his own son. In the words of Paul here himself, the death of Jesus, quote, was to show God's justice because in divine forbearance he had passed over sin. He had done that in the knowledge that he has, would pay for it in the death of Jesus. God looked unjust for passing over sin and the death of Jesus shows that he has not been. What that sin owed has been paid, allowing God to deal with his people in terms of mercy and grace. Again, in verse 26, the death of Jesus, this is a quote, the death of Jesus was to show his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus was not only for the purpose of you being justified. It was so that God would be justified in justifying the unjust. It's so that God would be shown to be just in justifying me, who is a dirty sinner. Had God just justified me, made me right with him without dealing with my sin, that would have rendered him unjust, something God cannot be as the basis and definition of justice himself. And so the purpose of the death of Jesus was to enable God to remain just himself as he justifies sinners. It allows him to remain just himself as he justifies sinners. It was to open up the options of mercy and grace to him without in any way threatening his justice. In fact, as I said a little bit a minute ago, but I want to flesh out, I don't think we should think of God's mercy and grace as primarily instruments of love, but as instruments of his justice. Now, of course, as we've said over and over again, God is one. All his attributes are one in his essence. We just talk about them separately because we're finite and can't conceive of them all at once. But God is one. And in any action he does, it's all his attributes acting. And yet, it is right that certain attributes are appropriated certain actions. That's the smarty pants theological way to say it. You see certain actions and you appropriate those to certain attributes of God as coming particularly from them. And I think that's how we should think of mercy and grace as being appropriated to justice, not to love. We think of them as love because they're nice actions and we think of love as nice. But actually, I think that gets us off on the wrong foot and we begin to think, well, how can God be merciful and gracious and loving and how can that go together with his justice? But if they're instruments of his justice, we don't have that problem at all. Instead, mercy and grace are outworkings of God's justice. The death of Jesus allows God's justice to be exercised as mercy and grace, not just, as judgment and wrath. Rather than being sentences given by a judge that contradict his justice, mercy and grace are live options of the judge to act justly because of what Christ has done on the cross. In fact, and this is crazy, in fact, now, because of Christ's death, it would be unjust of God to deal with you in any other way. It would actually be unjust for God to not show you mercy and grace because you've been connected with Christ by faith. Christ has paid your bill. Christ has paid it in full. There is not a speck for you to pay more. And so if God was to treat you with anything but mercy and grace, he would actually then be unjust because it's already been paid, bro. You can't treat them with wrath. You can't treat them with judgment that leads to wrath because it's been paid by Jesus. And that is exactly what God wanted. He's a just God who will act justly, and yet he wants to not destroy his people. And so he sets up a perfect salvation system That allows him to remain just and not do things apart from his justice, but allows his justice to now be exercised, not as wrath, but as mercy and grace towards his people. That is what the death of Christ has done, and why mercy and grace are workings of God's justice. Because were God to treat you and I in any other way, that would be the thing that mars his justice. The death of Jesus shows God to be just in justifying of the unjust. The death of Jesus shows God to be just in his justifying of the unjust, making his mercy and grace the only just options remaining for how he deals with his people's sins. So, back to Exodus 34. The reason Yahweh can be a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, without being in the slightest conflict with his justice, is because of the death of Jesus, Yahweh himself. The debt has been paid for his people. All that's left for him to treat his people with are mercy and justice, or sorry, mercy and grace, which are his justice. Because of the death of Jesus, Yahweh is just to dole out only grace and mercy to those who have united themselves to faith by faith to Christ. And yet, not everyone has or will be united to Christ by faith. And so the question becomes, what will become of them? And that's where the second part of Exodus 34 that we've read comes in. For those who remain not outside of Christ, they remain guilty. And because God is a God of justice, he will not turn a blind eye to sin. He will deal with it rightly. He will give just deserts. And what we call this, when God's justice encounters and judges and punishes sin, is wrath. And what I want us to see here is that this is no different than what God does with his own people's sin. God also meets his people's sin with his justice in the form of wrath. And I'm not contradicting everything I just said. God's wrath is also poured out on his people's sin. You should know that about your sin. Your sin has had wrath poured out on it. All of God's wrath that your sin has stored up has been poured out in full On your sin. It's just that instead of us experiencing that, instead of you and me experiencing that wrath for our sin, Jesus has done it for us. Wrath is given to your sin and my sin. The only difference between those with faith and those without faith is who is the one experiencing the wrath, who is the one drinking the cup of God's wrath empty. Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath for the sins of his people allows God now not to visit his wrath on them because it has already been emptied. There's no wrath remaining for God to pour out on you because Christ has drunk it empty. But for those outside of Christ, God's wrath toward their sin has not been emptied. It remains. And it must be drink. And there is no one who can drink it but those who commit the sin unless they place their faith in Jesus who will gladly so gladly drink it for them. God is a God of justice and we should celebrate that unapologetically. Sometimes with God's justice and then we think of wrath, we get a little squeamish like, let's just talk about his love and we don't, we should celebrate that God is a God of justice. We'll talk about this a little bit in our discussion group tables of why, but you do not want a God who is not just who does not look at sin and have wrath towards it, who does not actually pay out his wrath onto that sin, you do not want that kind of God. But what you also do not want is to experience that wrath yourself. And the good news of the gospel, the only reason I'm a Christian at all is because I'm convinced that God has done that for me. That, That I don't have to drink the cup of wrath that I, if I tried to, I would be destroyed by it. But that God himself, the very one who I have stoked up wrath against, God himself has drank his own wrath in Jesus so that it is satisfied. And now he only treats me with mercy and grace. God is just. He visits his justice on sin and he does so either via mercy and grace towards those covenanted with him by faith because Jesus has drank his wrath full, or he does so through wrath on the ones who will not let go of their sin and take hold of Christ, who will gladly drink the cup of wrath for them. God is just. And because he is not in spite of his being so, he is merciful. And he is gracious. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He would be unjust to do so. And God is just. So, what does all this mean for our own justice and mercy and grace and even our wrath? Number one, we should have wrath towards sin, and we should hope for the day that it is no more. You and I should hate, and I don't use that word like willy-nilly, we should hate sin, our own and others. We should hate individual sin that happens between two people, and we should hate systemic sin that happens in large people groups and systems and governments and whatever else. Our generation, you Zoomers, I think is what you're called. I saw Zoomer on Twitter. I think it's what Gen Z is called, maybe, but that's probably the most millennial thing I've ever said on stage. Gen Z, millennials, we have justice complexes. We have social media, we have news, we see things that are wrong, and we think, not just think, we know that's not right. And someone should be doing something about that and that is not a wrong impulse. Our justice complex can go overboard. But in general, when we see sin and injustice and there rises up in something, that's not right. And we get angry. That wrath is what you're experiencing. That is a communicable attribute of God and you are right to feel it. Now, how we exercise that wrath is gonna be in point two. We'll talk about in a second. But I want us to be freed to hate sin, to not be fluffy around it, to want to take a gun and put it at the lion's head of sin and pull the trigger to hate sin with a passion, whether it be our own, the sin of others because it's destroying them and destroying others, or societal systemic sin. We should hate sin and we should long that wrath should turn to longing, of wanting the day when there will be no more sin, where people will not wrong each other anymore, where injustice will not happen, where people will not be sold into slave trades, where adultery doesn't happen, where just sin is no more, people are no longer harmed. We should long for that day because it is coming. At the day of Christ, it is coming, where injustice and sin will be no more. A day is coming, when no drop of injustice will remain, when God's justice is not only a standard we are judged by, or is no longer a standard we are judged by, but is the reality we all live out and experience. Until then, we should feel wrath toward the sin and injustice we encounter, that we see. And we should long for the day that it will be no more at the day of Christ. Now, point two. The Bible's complex. The Bible loves to give paradoxes. And in one sense, I think it tells us to hate sin, And in another sense, it says, take not justice into your own hands. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that you should be a doormat and that anytime you experience wrong, there's never an instance where you should take appropriate legal action. Uh, God has given us, look at Romans 13. He's given us governing authorities to submit ourselves to So that when we are wronged, we can have some semblance of God's justice in a justice system. So I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that in counsel with Christians, we take that legal means. Otherwise, I think, by and large, the ethos that Christians should have, the way that we should operate in the world is to not take vengeance ourselves. Because we know that God's justice reigns. We know that God's justice is far more real than our own and is sure to come. And I do not trust us to dole it out always. I do not trust myself to take vengeance and do it appropriately in the exact measure that God would want it done. And so, while I hate sin, done to me, done to my wife, done to you, done to anyone, I'm slow to seek out vengeance myself. I love the movie, um, uh, oh, oh, uh, sorry, this is why I shouldn't go off the top of my head. But um, Citizen, what is the movie where the guy seeks goes after the guys who killed his daughter? Law-abiding Citizen, thank you. Gosh, you saved me. It's a great movie. And you're like, you go, man. But at the same time, that is not the vibe Christians should have. And I don't just mean literally going and killing someone for what they've done. I mean seeking it out. Someone badmouths you. And you know what? You would be justified to go, you know what? You want the receipts? I'll give you the receipts. Someone speaks against you or spreads rumors about you, you'd be, in a sense, justified, especially humanly speaking, to go about that and make things right, take vengeance. But scripture is clear, and I want to read a passage where that's not often a live option for Christians. That's not often a live option for us. Instead, we must bear the wrongs done to us. So I just want to read Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. I think this makes it really hard, and or at least makes us be really slow before we decide, you know what, I am going to take that vengeance. I hate what's done, and I'm going to take the vengeance myself. This is Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. I'm just going to read it out loud. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It kind of just cuts out vengeance off the, off the top. But rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. So even that gets into how we treat one another when we've not been in harmony. Just because someone else has not been in harmony with you doesn't mean you get to (laughs) perpetuate that disharmony further. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, another quote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Get vengeance that way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this, when we talk about how is God's justice, His attribute, communicated to us that we should share in it with him. I think this is it. I think this is it because who this sounds like to me is Jesus. And Jesus was falsely accused, not just like mostly falsely, 100% falsely accused of blaspheming Yahweh. And when he was accused and asked questions and just interrogated and tortured, he didn't open his mouth. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he just went because he knew what he was doing. He was winning our justification to remain just himself as God, and I think we follow in his footsteps by the power of the Spirit to hate sin and wrath and to where we can right wrongs. I think vengeance is different than righting wrongs, but right wrongs, especially societal, big issue things. But on the personal level where things have been done to us, if our God doesn't seek vengeance but pays it himself, who would rather do that than dole out punishment on the very ones who do the wrong themselves, who are we? to take vengeance into our own hands, to try to be the arbiters of justice and practice it exactly. And so when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, Yahweh himself, in being just, I think it looks like not taking justice into our own hands, vengeance into our own hands, but trusting in the God who is just, who will repay every wrong done. We do not need to fear that someone will get away with something. That's impossible. Justice will be had. All sin will be paid either in Christ, and that's what we hope for, for all people, or in the guilty themselves. So let's pray and then we'll go into some more worship. Lord, these are heavy things. Especially, I feel that weight when we go from thinking about your own justice to thinking about how to practice justice ourselves. Um, I'm more fuzzy on that. The situational... Details are important and it can be hard to know when um, to stand and when to call wrong wrong and to do, actually do something actively about it and when to hold our tongues and to be happy to be wrong because we're following the footsteps of Jesus to experience you in that, to commune with you in following your example of not taking vengeance into our own hands. So give us wisdom in that. I ask that you would meet us as we worship as we praise you for your justice, that you have gone to the uttermost lengths to remain just while justifying us. We praise you, Lord, for that. We praise you for that. It's In Christ's name we pray, amen.